Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Industry Seating. I'm your host, Jason Thomas. We're only two weeks away from racing. Thankfully, we'll actually have uh, things to talk about instead of me having to bug all of you for listener questions and try to find content. We will have content in spades here very soon. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited to get back to real racing and what this podcast was all about in its purest form. Before we get too, too far into this, I want to thank the sponsors, Pirelli, Blenza Oils, Works Connection, Fast Foundry, Pump Creek Funding, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, 612 Suspension, Pro Glow Wash, Risk Racing, Grant Stone Boots, and of course, Fly Racing. So only a couple uh, listener questions to go over today, but it's really more of a reminder that we will get back to many of the things that we used to do when there was racing. Uh, I'll try to get my power rankings back going. I'm not sure if you guys like those power rankings, but gives me somewhat of an outline to work from. So I'll try that. If you hate it, let me know. Uh, We don't have to do it every week, but I think it's interesting to kind of see the ebb and flow of these rider seasons. I know for me, weight going way back to when I was racing, you always tried to fit yourself in and say, okay, I'm a, you know, I'm a 12th place guy right now. That's, and you have to self-diagnose because man, I, I battle with that guy and he just, he had a little bit more speed than me or, you know, like, ah, if that guy's in front of me, I could probably catch him. And, and that really does go on inside these riders heads, but it's fun for us to kind of assess what we see from, from the sidelines too. And as these guys battle for the inevitable championship down the line, we can see things change, right? Because if you go back to the very beginning of 2020, Justin Barsha looked like he may well be your champion. As unlikely as that seemed going into the season, he wins the opener. Then I think he got second at the second round in St. Louis. And you're like, man, there's there's something to this. You look at Adam Cincerillo, kind of the same thing, right? He, he almost wins the opener, then strong race of the second round. He kind of got pushed around a little bit, but then he has that huge get off at Glendale that really derailed his season. So we don't always get what we think we're going to get. You know, it's, it's easy to make too early, I guess, conclusions. And for all of us who have been watching this sport for a very long time, you know that, right? You, you can't, you can't try to decide what's going to happen at round one, two, and three when you're talking about a series that goes on for months and you're, you know, rounds 14, 15, 16, 17 may look nothing like that. And that's exactly what happened for Eli Tomac. We were all kind of scratching our heads, leaving Anaheim one. He and Ken Roxon both had very, very underwhelming performances in Anaheim one. And then Eli Tomac is your champion and and is by far 
the best rider at the last few rounds. And you could argue Cooper Webb was right there too, but going into that seven round stretch, it was anybody's series. And Eli Tomac got it done. He made it happen and brought home his first ever 450 Supercross Championship. Congratulations to him. He will go into this new series, I'm sure, with some renewed motivation after a tough outdoor series. I don't think that outdoor series was anything near what he was looking for. But again, I think he took some time off. I I think he had a bit of an exhale after so many years of expectation in the Supercross series. He finally gets it. He has his first child. And I I just don't think he put in the same amount of work that he would normally put in for that Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship because of those things. And that's fine. I think he earned that. But I also think going out there and getting fifth and sixth place on the weekend sometimes, I think that probably motivated him. And I think you'll see a renewed fire versus what we saw this summer. I think you'll see Eli back to being Eli and challenging for wins. Now with Eli, the question is, will he have a slow start to the season? We've seen that happen to him many, many times. And this past year, it didn't cost him the title, but in other years it has. You know, he had the the incident where he crashes and then he has the equipment uh, difficulty where, you know, with his pants there because, and I'm trying to be very careful with that, but the crash certainly caused a problem with his, with his pants. And then he gets hurt in other series, you know, other seasons at the opening rounds. Um, had the shoulder issues a couple years ago, 2018, I believe that was. So it has not been a rosy beginning to many of these championships for Eli Tomac. And I, and I think that has put him behind the, behind the eight ball and upped the urgency for him. So I will be curious to see if he can fix that. If he can come out at the first round, he doesn't have to win, but put himself on the podium. And instead of everyone asking questions, he can put those questions to rest with a good opening round and coming off of his first championship, everyone be like, okay, well, you know, this is, this could be Eli's to lose, you know, and and that's just one guy that we're going to be looking at. But I I think Cooper Webb will be very difficult to deal with the Supercross series. We also have to look at Zach Osborne. How does he come off of, you know, he had his first ever win at the last round. Then he goes out and wins his first ever 450 championship last summer. So it seems like he has a lot of momentum for him to be a series contender in Supercross that's going to be up to him. And we haven't seen that yet from him. Obviously it's 450 Supercross series is fairly new to him. So can he take the next step? That's a big question that, that we'll all be asking, but only he can answer. So that's an interesting, another interesting storyline to watch, but I am, I'm very, very excited for the level of competitiveness in this 450 class for 2021. We always say this, how deep it is and the deepest year ever and blah, you know, it's a continuing storyline and we never get away from it. But I, I I believe it's the truth for 2021. I I don't think that it's just rhetoric. If you look at the lineup and you start going down the list of riders, there are a ton of guys that are experienced now. They're veterans, even the, the rookies like Adam Cincerillo, going into their second year, they learned a lot and they can be, they can much more use their talent and use their experience after that first season to make a real run at the championship. So a lot of questions that we will try to answer. We, we filmed the racer X preview videos 
Uh, we start on we film them on Tuesday. I'm not sure if we'll need to film any on Wednesday or not, but Tuesday's probably the day. Uh, so that'll be fun this week. I fly to Vegas tomorrow. I'll do the Pulp and Mech show tomorrow night, and then Weege and I and Steve will film on Tuesday. So look for those rolling out. I would guess the week of the race. I, I don't really know the schedule. It's going to take some time to edit, and then we will immediately start rolling those out. So keep an eye out for those. Fly Racing will again be a sponsor of those. But let's jump right into these questions. I only have two for today. The first one was about Davey Millsaps. So this goes back to the 2015 season when Davey was a part of Monster Energy Kawasaki. And it was a bit of a surprising signing for me going into his contract there. I didn't see it coming. But again, if you look at Davey's 2013 season where he led most of the championship year, just a really great bounce back year for him. It kind of makes sense, you know? I, I think Cowie's looking at it like, hey, this guy can do it. We just need to give him the opportunity, and he could deliver race wins for us. Now, looking back on it, we know that's not how it turned out. He had a very difficult, short-lived run at Monster Energy Kawasaki, pretty underwhelming. And then I believe it was the Santa Clara round, which Santa Clara is just south of San Francisco, just north of San Jose. I went to this race, uh, I, I, I remember flying in and, and it seemed like everything, the poop was hitting the fan right around then. And there were so many questions. We got the press release saying that Davey had been released, but we really didn't know why. And now we're here, you know, almost six years later and we still don't really know why, you know, there's a ton of speculation out there. And that's what, uh, Michael here is asking is what happened? Like, what is the deal? So this is what we know, you know, Kawasaki, I don't remember if they put out a PR exactly saying this, but the rumors were that it was some sort of anti-inflammatory that he could not produce a prescription for. And and I'm speculating here a bit too. So I'm trying to keep myself out of trouble, but this is what the rumor was, is that there was an anti-inflammatory found in his locker that he did not have a prescription for, which is a big no-no. Because you have to remember that Monster Energy Kawasaki is transporting all of this stuff across state lines and anything that he has, technically, they could be held liable for. Now, that's all what the reasons were for releasing him. Now, what do I believe? What I believe is that Kawasaki wanted out of the contract. I don't think they felt Davey was necessarily necessarily performing to the letter of the deal. He was paid really well from what I have gathered. I don't know the exact number, but I could ballpark it. And it it was a significant amount of money. And I don't think that Kawasaki felt like they were getting their money's worth. What happens in those scenarios is that teams will look for an out. If they want out, they're going to try to explore ways out of a contract. If you have an anti-inflammatory in your locker that you can't produce a prescription for, guess what? That's an out. Now, I'm, I am for sure speculating on that, but that's what I believe. I believe it was a convenient way to release Davey Millsaps from his contract, save budget, and move on. Now, what was the anti-inflammatory? I can't answer, right? Having an anti-inflammatory for supercross racers who are constantly beating up their bodies and Davey's had a million injuries, that's not shocking to me. I could absolutely believe that that's exactly what it was. Now, a lot of people think it wasn't anti-inflammatory. It was something else. I don't know that. I'm not going to speculate on what or wasn't the drug. 
but that's what the line was. And honestly, it, it kind of doesn't matter what it was, whether it was absolutely an anti-inflammatory that's innocent, really. If you're really getting down to it, that's pretty innocent. I don't know why he wouldn't have got a doctor pres- doctor's prescription for that, but in that purest form, if you're going to believe that story, which I, I will just because I have no reason not to, there's nothing really wrong with that. Anti-inflammatories are pretty necessary to to keep you going through a season because you're just constantly, you know, crashes through the week. And for Davey, like I said, he's had a million injuries. He probably has to take stuff just to get on. He had to just get on his motorcycle back in those days. So that's what happened. That's, you know, Davey was unfortunately released. Uh, I, from what I hear, Kawasaki went to their legal team and said, Hey, this is what we have that we, is this grounds to release him? And at the time they were told yes. Now, since then, what I have learned, and and again, this is not gospel. So I'm speculating. I believe that Davey pursued legal action to get paid what he was owed. And from what I was told, Davey came out good on that end. I believe he was paid a significant sum, if not all of his money for being released. Now I don't have, I don't have proof of that. And, and this is speculation again, but that's what I was told was that Davey, I don't want to want to, I don't even know if he sued them, but he certainly pursued legal action to get paid. And, And I think that they may have settled. I don't know if there was a legal judgment, but I think that Davey did okay in the end financially on that deal. So we're never going to know the facts unless Davey wants to come out and do a podcast with someone, me, Steve, someone, and explain exactly what happened. And maybe he can't. Maybe the terms of that settlement or judgment, what have you, preclude him from doing anything like that. My guess would be we'll never know. You know, maybe 20 years from now when, when you know, limitation statutes and all that stuff expire, maybe Davey would be willing to do it or maybe he won't. Maybe it's just like, nah, it's in the past. We're done. I got paid. I'm out. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where this sport, you know, if, the, if this was the NFL, we'd probably know exactly what happened, but that's just what moto is. Moto has this shroud of secrecy around it for whatever reason, always has probably always will, right? We don't have injury reports like these other major sports do. You never know if a guy's hurt or not. You don't know what his excuses are, if they're real or fake or what's going on. It's always up to guys like, you know, racer X and trans world and whatever the, the reporters of the sport to go try to dig through stuff. And a lot of times they can't even say, because if they burn sources or if they share information that they have been told specifically not to, their access will be cut off. And that's, that's not any good, right? You you need to have a level of trust between who you can ask and who will give you information. And they have to believe that you're not going to out them right? You can hint around at stuff and say, Hey, this is what we think or whatever. But just coming out with, you know, like if, if you guys follow a mainstream sports, like Adam Schefter in the NFL or Adrian Wojnarowski in, in the NBA, they just break stories. And sometimes they have direct sources that they will claim. And sometimes they don't, but they, man, they really put things out there. And I, I don't know what the main difference is. Maybe they just have decided that the sport is big enough that they're still going to get their sources no matter what, but man, they really, they take some chances sometimes. And I would bet it's the same. I would bet they know tons and tons of things that they 
don't ever put out there and they have to make judgment calls between themselves and their employer about what they put out and what they don't. I, I would just guess that's the nature of it. As much as we think that they always put things out there, I bet that there's things they hold back just because it's too harmful to someone or they've just been asked to like, hey, you, you can't. You just can't put that out there uh, legally or otherwise. So thanks, Michael, for the question. Again, I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of exactly what happened unless one of the the parties that were involved come out and say, because anything else less than that is just speculation. They are, they're only a few people I bet there are a bunch of people, but there are only a few people that are ever going to have the authority to speak on it with with facts. The other question I have for you guys is from Jason Lee, and he is uh, he's from Connecticut, and he's talking about why you know if you look at the car industry, they come out with all of these limited edition special type cars over the years, like a Ford GT, the new Ford Bronco, all these things that really pique the interest of novelty buyers. And why does Moto not have that? Now, I don't have all the answers, right? I'm not a, I don't work for a motorcycle OEM, so I can't tell you specifically, but what I do know is that, right, it's two different markets and the demand for each market is wildly different. And I, I, to me, it comes down to how these companies are structured. If you look, and and I've been, uh, Listeners of this podcast know that I've been to Japan a few times and got to visit some a few factories. And what I saw from Suzuki is they have a very rigid structure of how their factory works. One day, or let's say several days or weeks or months or whatever, they will have RMZ 450s on the assembly line. And that's their engines. That's what they're knocking out. Engine after engine after engine is going to be a production RMZ 450 engine. And that's what's coming down the line. And then when it's time to switch over, now they switch to a uh, Suzuki Katana or whatever, right? A street bike engine or whatever. They have a million models, so it could be anything. They could go to a quad or whatever, Uh, but they are going to switch over and that's what they knock out. And they have these production schedules and production windows, just like any factory, you know, assembly factory will. And they are mapped out and they are down to the hour of how many, you know, the units they have and the time they have, and they knock those out and then they switch and they day after day after day. And it's very, it's a very monotonous process, I'm sure. And these, these factories are not glamorous. They are exactly what you'd think. They're super clean and all of that very professional. But I think it's for these factory workers, it's just a job. Like they're just knocking these projects out and then they're on to the next one. Now, if you go back and look at the success and how KTM and, and then into Husky and now into Gas Gas, how they have found success is they have been much more nimble in their production capacities. And if you go back, let's say you went back 15 or 20 years and you looked at what KTM was doing, they were making changes on the fly. They were coming out with all of these different models throughout the year. And, and I remember looking at KTM's lineup for off-road going back, I don't know, remember what year it was. And, and Steve and I were talking about it and it was like, they had like 32 different off-road models between EXC and SX and SXF and fuel inject two strokes. And then just go down the line. You're like, holy crap, like this is crazy. And then you dug a little deeper and you saw how KTM was able to pivot and they could create small batches or make, make 
changes on the fly as to how they were working their production schedule. And if something needed to be changed, they would immediately put that into effect and they would change it. And they would come out with a mid-year motorcycle that had updated changes on it. And it was just a completely different model than the Japanese had going on. And, and I believe that's still the same to this day. So when you ask how or why motorcycle manufacturers are not making these small batch novelty type motorcycles, like he's, he's mentioning like a, a 2003 RM, RM250. Why don't they come out with that? Like customers would clamor to buy those things or go back to like a 2002 YZ250, which was a really popular and great bike. I, I raced that bike in Supercross. It was an awesome model. The 2004 may have even been liked even more by people that can remember that far back. Why don't they, why don't they make runs of those bikes and, and sell those and people would love them? I think it's just, I think one, on one hand, it's the stubbornness of the Japanese. Like I, I don't believe that they have any interest in doing that. And then secondarily, I think the, the cost of ramping all those things back up would outweigh any profits that they could make. I just don't think the market is big enough for it. And that that's my perception of it. Because if, because if you look at what I, what I would look at, like what Ford GT does, right? Okay. They built this Ford GT that people love. That's a $180,000 car. I, I think, right. That's just from memory. So unless they're going to make a 2004 YZ250 and charge $25,000 per bike, right? I don't think that it's going to make them enough money for all the work and all the changes they would have to go through to recreate that motorcycle. That's just my perception and and my guess as to why they don't do it. Now, if we could convince them that there is a market for that, right? If you go, if you guys went and made a, you know, 1996 CR 250, which remember how great that bike was, even though McGrath was running the 93 frame, I raced in the intermediate class, a 1996 CR250. And that bike was amazing. It was a great, great bike. If you, if you could talk Honda into that and say, Hey, there's a market for this. You could ramp, ramp up the price charge two, three, four, five X normal retail for that bike. We can, we could sell them all. If that was their market research and they found that to be true, I, I think you would see them do that. Right. But at, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to su- supply and demand and margins if that's it, 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 right, that to drive that decision, that's what it would take in my opinion. So I just think it's apples to oranges a little bit between cars and motorcycles, just the, the market, the off-road market as passionate as all of us are. I don't think on a global scale, it's as overwhelmingly big as we would want it to be right. If you're looking at a dollars and cents level, I just don't think there's enough there to make these small runs for factories because it it is such a a big undertaking for these factories to do it. And they have very tight production windows anyway, because they have to make so many models because let's not forget, like let's say Honda, right? They don't just make models for America. They make all these scooters for Indonesia. They, They have different models for all over the world. They have their own Japanese domestic models. They have, of course, the models that we know for North North America, typically South America. The European models are different too. If you look at what models are offered in Europe, they are very different. I remember looking at, I would go into dealerships in, in Italy and these places and be like, man, I've never seen that Honda before. We don't, we're not even offered that Honda. 
So all of those models have to have production windows in place to knock those out and then get them crated and onto, you know, onto into shipping containers and out to wherever they're being exported to. So I think the small batch stuff, it just doesn't create enough revenue to fit into the time that they have. So I hope that's something that could be changed over time. I hope there's a market that we could really convince someone that like, yeah, if you created 500 of these specific bikes and, and made them much more expensive, people would buy them. Maybe, maybe that's true, but I don't know the economics of it. That would take someone much smarter than me. Maybe that's something that Steve Mathis could ask. Uh, I don't even know who would be the right guy to ask Eric Kehoe or, or someone It would have to be on the corporate side, maybe Chris Wheeler at American Suzuki that could walk us through the hows and whys of something like that could or couldn't be possible. So thanks for the question, Jason. I, again, I'm not the expert on that, but my limited knowledge, I just, to me, financially, it, it probably wouldn't make sense with the retail price environment we have that that's right. That's where it's got to come in because he's mentioning a lot of cars in here that are crazy expensive, like a Bentley blower. That's a reproduction of a 1929 car. I would have a feeling that that's a crazy expensive model. I, I've never even heard of that, but that would be the only way I think possible is if you went back and say something more exotic, like a 1986 CR125 that seemed to be really, really popular, right? That was when Honda was dominating. If you wanted to charge, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 for it, maybe there's a, this high end marketplace for that. Again, maybe that's possible. It's something to look into. It's an interesting idea. I just don't know how realistic it is. So that, that's it for this week. Thanks to all the sponsors again, Pirelli, go buy yourself a new set of Pirelli tires. We're going to be in the springtime before we know it. If you're in the South, if you're in Florida, California, Arizona, it's primetime riding season for us. But for us up here in the North, I'm looking outside. It's in the thirties and raining right now. Not ideal for riding. When you are ready to ride, put some Pirellis on your bike. Blenza oils, go check out all the lines of Blenza oils they have out there talking about these old vintage two strokes. Blenza is the perfect solution for that. Works Connection, go to at Works Connection on their Instagram, worksconnection.com. Check out that pro launch start device. Fast Foundry, if you need to modernize your small business or big business, reach out to Fast Foundry. I'm going to be recording a call with Robert here soon to, to tell you more about that. Pump Creek Funding, rates are at an all-time low. Refis, if you're going to buy a house, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. There's literally never been a time in America's history where it is more financially beneficial to refinance your house or buy a house. And that's that's not hyperbole. That's not me making that up. That is absolute fact. Reach out to Zach Morris, 720-212-4685. And actually, Zach is going to be upping his uh, sponsorship level. You'll be hearing much more about that. And I'm going to do a uh, an interview with Zach upcoming soon. So thank you to Plum Creek Funding for stepping up for 2021. Premier Vapor Blasting. If you have that old bike that we're talking about, if you have an old one, uh, uh, we're talking about making new ones, but if you have an old one, reach out to Premier Vapor Blasting to get all of your refurbish refurbishment needs. If I could talk, that would help. Go to at Premier Vapor Blasting on their Instagram, see what they can do. And that, to me, I always say that on the, on the show, but to me, that's the best evidence of what they're capable of is checking out their Instagram and seeing what they can do with turning old parts new again. 612 suspension. If you have any kind of power sports item, they can make it function better, right? 
UTV, ATV, motorcycle, off-road, street bike, whatever. They work on everything. They are a race tech affiliate. So you know, you're getting quality work, quality parts, get your oil changed, right? And even the most bare minimum, right? For us racing, when I was racing pro, we got our oil changed every single week. And for those of you who are out there, like, you're like, that's crazy, but that's how important it is. That's how much strain we were putting on how hot we were boiling the, the oil in our suspension. And once the oil boils, it loses viscosity and it loses performance. So we would have that done every single race week. Now you're probably looking and thinking about your motorcycle and going, man, I haven't done that in months. So think about how valuable that is. Reach out to Ronnie at 612 suspension, go to at 612 S I X 12 on Instagram and 612suspension.com or any of these companies, you can reach out to me and I will put you in direct contact with them. That's, that's obviously a big part of what I want to be accomplishing is, is putting you in direct contact with these sponsors. Pro Glow Wash, this stuff is built for power sports, right? It's built to take off road grime. It's built to take off. Let's say you ride in orange clay in Georgia or South Carolina and, and it stains everything you have. That's what Pro Glow Wash is for. It's built for tougher stains, tougher dirt types, road grime. That's what Pro Glow Wash is all about. Instead of just using some simple green or whatever that you'd buy at Walmart, buy something that's specifically built for what we're doing. Power Sports, Pro Glow Wash. Thanks to Ryan and the team over there. Grant Stone Boots, like many of you, you love dirt bikes, but you probably work in an office environment. Why don't you wear some Grant Stone Boots to work? They have outfitted me very, very well. So anytime I need to go out, whether it's to dinner or to work, I have Grant Stone Boots to put on my feet. And finally, Risk Racing, I will be recording with James over there, and I want to thank Trevor as well, to learn a little bit more about Risk Racing and the products they have to offer. They have all kinds of things, a ripper that's a Bluetooth-enabled roll-off system. They have palm protectors. They have the lock and load system. They have all kinds of great things that you may not know about that you should. So I will be talking to James about that very soon. And of course, Fly Racing, which you all know I work there full-time. Thanks to everybody. Thanks again for listening. And less than two weeks, the seems like what seems like forever, every off season is almost over. See you guys.